when I was in high school and college, I worked a part-time job at a Christian bookstore for about two or two and a half years, and every day new shipments would come in, and it would usually be up to me to place these new books into their proper sections and onto their proper shelves. And so I had to decide where these books went, and normally what I would do is I would pick up the book and peruse through the table of contents, maybe I'd glance at the back on the summary of the book, and then I would proceed to decide what kind of book we were dealing with here. If it were a theology book, it would go in the back right, in the theology section. If it were a Christian living book, it would go in the front left, the opposite side of the store, in the Christian living section. And while I worked there, I took great strides, quite literally, to keep these two sections organized and separate from each other. Every book had a home, according to me, and every customer need had a precise category. So good so far, right? Well, then a customer would come in, and it would be obvious the downfall of this massive chasm of separation when he would bashfully come up to me and say in a low voice, I need need some help. I'm addicted to pornography. I'm too ashamed to go to my pastor. I'm not there yet. I just... I just need a book. Will you, where will you direct me? Do you have a book for me? (laughs) Which section do you go to? Where would you direct this person? Certainly this issue would fall under the category of Christian living, right? But I don't think if we put that person there, it would be as neat as we would like. Now what this person needs I think you will agree, is a mind that is captured with the glory of God. This person needs a mind that is captivated with the beauty, not that's physical and can be downloaded, but with the beauty of Christ. This person needs a robust theology, doesn't he? The important lesson I learned then during those two or two and a half years was this. Theology and Christian living don't belong on opposite sides of the store. Theology and Christian living belong together. Side by side, right next to one another. God doesn't just want our minds, our theology. He wants our bodies He wants a Christian life and vice versa. And so the true Christian life is only lived when we devote both mind and body to God. Turn with me in your Bibles this morning to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12 can be found on page 947 of the black hardback Bibles we've provided for you. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. And as you turn there, if you were to place the book of Romans in a section of my previously mentioned bookstore, I wonder which section you would choose. You'd probably choose theology, right? 
You'd be correct, mostly. At least for the first 11 chapters. First 11 chapters, Paul delivers a rich theology of what God has done for his people in the person and work of his son, Jesus Christ. It's what he calls the gospel. And in chapters 1 through 11, he extrapolates in great detail this theology, this gospel. In chapter 1, Paul explains that the wrath of God burns fiercely against all humanity, not only because we have rejected him with our minds, not just because we've disbelieved, but also because we've rejected him in our bodies as our behavior often manifests. In chapter 2, Paul assures us to our own terror that God will surely judge and that his patience for the time being is only intended to summon us to repentance. Chapter 3, Paul uses the word sin for the first time and communicates that sin like a disease has corrupted our entire nature, mind and body. Recall the anatomy words that Paul uses in Romans 3 to, to uh, communicate this corruption. He says, their throat is an open grave. Their tongues deceive. Their mouths are full of curses. Their feet even shed blood. Their eyes do not fear God. The terrifying chapter as we see our sin exposed in God's light and our excuses rendered utterly useless. But it is precisely here and just here where Paul gives us the exceedingly wonderful news, quite suddenly actually, that by the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ, our sins can be forgiven, God's wrath can be removed, and our righteousness can be restored. Chapters 5 through 8, Paul gives us hope that our faith in Christ gives us access to the Holy Spirit who is God, who empowers us to hunt down and kill all remaining sin in our lives with the assurance that one day our bodies will be resurrected and glorified and freed finally from the presence of sin. And finally, in chapters 9 through 11, Paul reminds us that all people, every one of us, both Jews, God's chosen people under the Old Covenant, and Gentiles have fallen under the power and curse of sin. But although all have fallen, the unshakable promise is that God's mercy will faithfully be given to those who call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is Paul's rich theology of the gospel, chapters 1 through 11. And in chapter 12, where we will remain this morning, Paul urges us to respond to this theology, respond to this gospel with Christian living. Follow along with me as I read Romans 12, verses 1 through 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed 
by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Paul has in mind two ways, I think, in which he's encouraging us to respond to the gospel. The first is the presentation of our bodies, and the second is the transformation of our minds. So let's allow those two categories to guide our time together this morning. First, the presentation of our bodies. We should present our bodies to God. I appeal to you, therefore. This is Paul's appeal to us, his exhortation to us, even his command to us. Present your bodies to God. Give your entire self, all of you, to God. It's a lot to ask, isn't it? But this command, far from leaving a bitter taste in the believer's heart, is immediately sweetened with the reminder of God's mercies. I appeal to you. I command you, therefore, Brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God or in view of all God's mercies toward you, present your bodies. So Paul, after guiding us on a long hike through Romans 1 through 11, has finally brought us to the towering summit of Romans chapter 12. And he says, Before we go any further, open your eyes. Look at the magnificent view. Behold the mercies of God. Hasn't he been kind towards you? Hasn't he been wonderfully patient and forgiving and loving toward you? We must anchor this truth in our hearts. True Christian sacrifice True Christian obedience is only achieved when done in response to the mercies of God. We are commanded to do something. We are called to live a certain way. But we must also understand that in order for us to do something for God, He must first do something for us. Plead with you not to get that backwards. You get that backwards, you are in for a grievously frustrating Christian life. So I give myself to God and I'm saved? No. You have it backwards. God gave himself for you. Trust in this. Trust in Christ and you will be saved. So we're at the summit, right? And our breath has been taken away by this astounding view of God's mercies toward us. And Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. What does he mean by this? Well, he's saying that we should devote our lives entirely to God, right? Simple enough. But I think equally important is the way in which he says it. It's a little provocative, isn't it? 
We might think it provocative due to the word sacrifice, right? That's new to us. But Paul's original readers would have thought it provocative due to the word bodies. Isn't that strange? You see, there was a saying in that Roman culture which had been so influenced by a platonic philosophy, a platonic view of the human body. And that saying was this. Soma sima estin. The body is a tomb. According to this thought, the body was dead and always seemed to drag down and hinder the person who really lived inside. The real you was not the body, it was the immaterial part of you, the mind, the spirit, dude, the soul. So Paul uses this term bodies intentionally to cause us to re-examine what matters to God. What does he want from us? And Paul's intentionality with this word applies to us even today. This isn't just anciently provocative. It applies to us today. So many preachers will beg their hearers to ask Jesus into their hearts, which is exactly where he belongs. But they don't clarify that Jesus also wants our bodies. He doesn't just want our hearts. He wants our hands. Jesus doesn't just want our mind. He wants our muscles. He doesn't just want our belief. He wants our behavior as well. Our bodies and all that we do with them Seeing, touching, relaxing, working, playing, eating. Our bodies belong to God. So won't you present your bodies to him, Paul asks, as a sacrifice. That's the word for us, isn't it? Sacrifice. We're so removed from ancient culture where sacrifice was the climactic act of worship in nearly all ancient religions, both Jewish and pagan alike. An animal would be brought to a priest who had been trained in the act of slaughter, and its blood would be spilled upon an altar. Pretty graphic metaphor, don't you think? Pretty risky image, Paul, his secretary asks. You sure about this? And actually, many groups within early Christianity would eventually take commands like this to the extreme and intentionally seek out persecution and death. Why? So that they might present their bodies as a sacrifice to God. While we can admire their zeal, perhaps, we can also pity them for misunderstanding Paul They have missed the entire point of the Christian life, namely the life part. Well, that was then. That was their misunderstanding. What about now? How do we misunderstand Paul in his usage of the word sacrifice today? I think we forget the mercies of God. We slip back into a subtle works-based relationship with God. 
What shall I sacrifice? My time? My money? My Sunday mornings? My Wednesday nights? Dating? Chocolate? Television? I can make sacrifices. You, you just tell me what you want. Paul says, put, put your checkbook down. I mean living sacrifices. I mean walking, talking, breathing, living sacrifices. As one pastor has said, Paul is not calling us to make sacrifices. Paul is calling us to be sacrifices. And not just living sacrifices, as you can see, but also holy sacrifices. You see that word? It's an adjective. And it's modifying the noun sacrifice. A holy sacrifice set apart, separate from the uncleanness of the world, morally blameless, without blemish. I, pres- I appeal to you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, acceptable sacrifice, meaning that this presentation of our bodies pleases God. It honors God. It delights God. I wonder, do you view your whole life as a sacrifice? Do you reflect on what you've done with your body this week, even this weekend? Are you striving to please God, to honor God? Does your diet honor God? Does your sleep schedule delight God? Is your sex life pleasing to God? Is your work ethic honor God? You present your entire lives as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable. You know what Paul calls that? You know what he he calls that whole thing? Worship. He calls it worship. Which is your spiritual worship? Logikain latreia in the Greek. And I must say, I do believe King James is helpful here. King James reads, which is your reasonable service? The logic goes something like this. Paul says, look, I've put quite the yoke on you. I realize that. By the authority vested in me as a minister of the gospel, as an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, under the direct and divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I have commanded you to vote your entire lives, bodies included, to God. This will undoubtedly entail sweat. This will inevitably breed opposition and persecution and hostility. And it will prove itself to be an excruciatingly difficult lifestyle. For this is the highest and holiest calling. But isn't it reasonable? Isn't it fitting? Isn't it appropriate and in accordance with the mercies of God? The Lord Jesus Christ has given you his very body. Won't you now respond to him by giving him gladly your own? Won't you worship him now by living under his lordship every day in your body and by devoting all your doings 
to him. Church family, this is the true worship. This is the spiritual worship the Father is actively looking for. And this is what we, as the leaders at Crosspoint, we as the members of Crosspoint are seeking to do, to equip you, to equip you through corporate worship, that is gathered worship on Sunday mornings, to engage in continuous worship. And we appeal to you, we encourage you, as we encourage ourselves to present your bodies to him as a living sacrifice, as an act of continuous worship. So where do we start? How do we go about engaging in this continuous worship? George Barna is the founder of the Barna Group, which is an organization that studies the beliefs and behaviors of Americans. Maybe you've heard of them, particularly American Christians. And in a recent national survey of 2,000 adults, over 2,000 adults, only 4% of those polled confessed to having a biblical worldview. That is a biblically based, gospel based way of thinking that informs the way they live and make decisions. 4%. Remember, we're talking about American Christians as well. Barna makes the concluding comment. The primary reason that people do not act like Jesus is because they do not think like Jesus. Behavior stems from what we think, our attitudes, beliefs, values, opinions. What we found is that although most people own a Bible and know some of its content, our research found that most Americans have little idea how to integrate core biblical principles to form a unified and meaningful response to the challenges and opportunities of life. Barna is exactly right. Behavior stems from what we think. Christian obedience is to be more than just skin deep. Parents, this is valuable wisdom, isn't it? How do we go about forming godly Christian behavior and conduct in our children? Is it merely through wrist slapping? Timeouts? Dessertless dinners, which I've had my fair share of? Not anymore. Maybe. But it's like the man in the bookstore, right? You don't just teach him Christian living. You don't just bypass theology. You don't just aim for bodily rehabilitation. Lest you end up with a man who professes Christ with his lips and even with his body, but his heart is far from him. Aim deeper. Aim deeper. This is Paul's appeal to us. After he commands the presentation of our bodies, he immediately, in the very next sentence, gives us the means by which this bodily behavior may be accomplished. The transformation of our minds. Verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be 
transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So still keeping the mercies of God in focus, Paul again gives us something to do. But first he gives us something not to do. Do not be conformed to this world or do not be conformed to this age. That is society, the culture, the world that is all around us with all its morals and ethics. Don't be conformed to it. Remember our calling to be a holy and set-apart sacrifice? It's not going to be easy. The Christian is ambushed at all times, at all sides. This world means to forcefully push you and enticingly pull and lure you back into its own moral mold, and you must resist with all vigilance. So what's the plan? How will you do this? How will you resist an enemy that has already completely surrounded you? Some of you are freshmen in college. It's your first time living away from home. You are surrounded with pressure. Some of you are traveling businessmen who undoubtedly find yourselves every so often, in a compromising situation. Some of you are teachers, housewives, lawyers, preachers. Whoever you are and wherever you are, what's the plan? How do you keep from being conformed to the world around you? By the transformation and renewal of your mind. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. You notice how in both statements here, Paul is not talking necessarily about something you do, but about something that's done to you. It's not, do not conform. It doesn't say that. It's, do not be conformed. By whom? By the world. It's not transform yourselves by renewing your minds quickly. It's be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Our minds are most shaped by what we most expose them to. That's Paul's point. The key question then becomes, says commentator Doug Moo, The key question then becomes, what are we feeding into our minds? Most Christians have little choice but to spend 40 or 50 hours of every week in the world, making a living. It is hoped that most Christians also seek to spend time with unbelievers as a means of ministry and evangelism. But if we spend all our discretionary time, that is, all our leisure time, Watching network television, reading secular books, listening to secular music. It will be a wonder if our minds are not fundamentally secular. In other words, 
conform to this world, right? Our job, Moose says, is to cooperate with God's Spirit by seeking to feed into our minds information that will reprogram our thinking, reprogram our thinking in line with the values of the kingdom. Christians, like everyone else, read the paper, watch the news, get together with friends, go to work, go to school, watch movies, read literature. We're normal. We're human beings with an innate God-given desire to work and learn and enjoy. We're in the world. There's nothing wrong with that. But don't let down your defense. Don't let down your defense. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, that the God of this world, that is our enemy, the devil himself, blinds minds. The devil loves to blind minds. The devil lives to blind minds. Why? What is he so absolutely terrified will be seen. Paul tells us, the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. You have an unfathomably important role to play in this world now that you've been made a recipient of the mercies of God. You don't escape the world. Someday we will. We'll escape the world and spend eternity in a renewed and righteous world, but only when God deems fit. You don't escape the world. You engage the world. You influence the world. You are to be salt and light in the world. Defense won't cut it. Shallow, emotional, Anti-intellectual Christianity will only get you so far. Do not conform. Play defense, but you must also play smart offense. How? By putting on display the way you live with your body, the way you think with your mind, the authority and majesty and honor and glory of Christ. So students, for example, you are more than likely being taught in your schools by your teachers a Darwinian worldview, a naturalistic philosophy. And you realize that this is completely incompatible with God's word. And this disturbs you. And you wonder how you should respond to it. What am I supposed to do? Do I I drop the class? I can't because it's required. Do I just refuse to study? That's not smart. It's required. So what are you to do? Do not be conformed. Play defense. Play offense. Be transformed by the renewal 
of your mind. You must not only study, you must double study, as a friend of mine calls it. So you, you read you read On the Origin of Species by Charles Darwin for one hour. Then you go immerse yourself in God's Word for two hours. You ace that test. You excel above all your unbelieving peers in their own worldview. And then you humbly tell them and show them by the way you live and by the way you think with your mind that's being renewed by the Holy Spirit, the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. You glorify God with your mind by taking every thought captive to Christ. You center all your thinking by the power of the Holy Spirit on God's truth. This doesn't just apply to students, of course. We're all called to be diligent students of God's Word, aren't we? Theology is not optional. It is essential. It is essential for living in the world and yet not being conformed to it. Mind transformation. Finally, what's the goal of this mind transformation for the believer? What's the goal? So we we got this mind transformation that we're shooting for. What's the ultimate goal? That by testing, Paul says, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. As we continue to be transformed, by the renewal of our minds over time, we begin to gain godly wisdom. We begin to view the world and our choices not through the spectacles of the world, but through the spectacles of God's word, of God's truth. As our views of God, sin, ourselves, marriage, dating, politics, Morality, as all these things are shaped by God's word, we begin to be transformed. We begin to think God's thoughts after him. We begin to think and behave like Christians. From the inside out. We who have been dramatically changed by the mercies of God and who are now striving to live a life that puts his glory and honor on display for the world. Oh, how the mercies of God change us. By them, not only does God forgive us our sins, remove his wrath, restore to us our righteousness in Christ. But he also changes our lives by his Holy Spirit. He changes the way we live. He changes the way we think. Church family, isn't it fitting since Christ offered his body for us, we should now respond by giving our lives, our bodies to him as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable. This is our reasonable service to him. This is our spiritual worship of him. Devote your entire lives to God and always, always, 
keep his abundant mercies towards you in view. Let's pray together. Our Father, we give ourselves to you. We give our bodies to you. We give our minds to you. Do with us as you please and shape us to be a people who are holy and separate from the world like you, but also shape us to be a people who, out of love for the world, seek to resemble your son Christ and how he came and engaged the world and proclaimed truth to sinners such as ourselves. Keep us mindful of your mercies and cause us to be faithful servants of your Son Christ all our days. In his name we pray. Amen. Let's stand as we respond to God's word. Take my